papermen meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. For I meet politicians and grafters by the score. Killers plain and fancy, it's really quite a bore. Oh, newspaper men meet such interesting people. They wallow in corruption, crime and gore. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, city desk. Pull the press, pull the press. Extra, extra, read all about it. It's a mess meets the test. Oh, newspaper men meet such interesting people. It's wonderful to represent the press. Media Project, your half hour of commentary and analysis on the issues confronting the news media in recent days, and we're very happy to have you join us for this conversation. Welcome. I'm Rex Smith, editor-at-large of the Times Union, and I will try to round up the uh, crew here to make sure that everybody behaves and offers their commentary with the usual scintillating insight. Dr. Alan Shartok, first, of course, the CEO of Northeast Public Radio, columnist, commentator, political scientist. Alan, you ready to uh, rock and roll here? We're ready to rock and roll, or as the old song goes, Teresa Brewer, you may not remember her, none of you may remember her, being young people, <laughs> she used to sing, put another nickel in in the Nickelodeon, and that's what we're doing, putting another nickel in today. Right, and for those of you uh, in the audience who don't know what a nickel is, Alan will explain it, it's a, an outmoded form of currency. Judy Patrick is here, Vice President of the New York Press Association, uh, former editor of the Daily Gazette in Schenectady. You ready here, Judy? I got a big stack of nickels here, ready to roll. A big stack of nickels. <laughs> yeah. All right. And Jen Smith of the Berkshire Eagle, editor, reporter, and woman about the Berkshires. How are you doing, Jen? I am well. You know, this is a tall order to be scintillating and to rock and roll and throw nickels, but I'm, I'm, I'm here for it. <laughs> Any big news to report, Jen? Well, Alan, I'm wondering if you're incinerating my, my change-up in my career since we are talking I, about I it. I am. Yeah. Tell us about it. It's so interesting. <laughs> so the last day of my 15-year career with the Berkshire Eagle uh, will be coming to a head on October 2nd, and I will be heading to the Seattle Times. Wow. Oh, how wonderful for you, Jen. Congratulations. Yes, that would be terrific. Thank you. I'm very excited. I'm going to be the the new engagement editor for the education lab out there. So I get to marry both my passions of education and journalism, and I, I'm very excited to continue uh, doing what I'm doing, but with a, a really great and dedicated team to back me up. What will you actually be doing then? I'll be supporting our team of reporters, specifically focusing on building new relationships and sources and story ideas from the South King County area. And I will also be working with a team of, they have a student voices group. And so I'll be working with a team of young writers. And I'll also be working on forming other community partnerships. So a lot of times it's a very solutions journalism focused model through the education lab, which has been around for about eight years now. So a lot of times the media is really good about saying, you know, this is going wrong and that's going wrong. But we sometimes forget to ask, like, well, what, what is the solution? And so they're hiring me to be a part of a team to ask those questions and to highlight some of that work that's happening in the community. 
What a tremendous loss for the Berkshire Eagle. We know and love you, Jen, and I'm sure once in a while we're going to be able to get you on the programs. But I wanted to ask you this. It's not only the Berkshire Eagle which will be suffering terribly. A lot of people don't know about your other life as a baker. (laughs) It's true. It's true. I've been baking for the past five years at Tunnel City Coffee in Williamstown, and it's part of my family, too. I love it. They do sell coffee out in uh, Seattle, don't they? You might uh, be able to continue doing uh, baking, huh? (laughs) Yeah, word on the street. Well, it's a wonderful thing. The Seattle Times is one of America's great metropolitan so-called mid-sized dailies. It has been doing distinguished journalism for a long time and paid a lot of attention to it because Hearst owns what is now a a website out there, the PI.com, which used to be the Seattle Post-Intelligencer. In the days when there were multiple newspapers in cities, you know, that was quite a competition between the Seattle Times and Hearst's Post-Intelligencer, beautiful name for a newspaper. And the afternoon newspapers, of course, have died across the country, and that was what position the PI held, and it was unfortunate. But the Times has just been a great place, and I'm sure you're going to do terrific journalism out there. Well, we're glad you're here with us this week. You know, one of the things that has, of course, taken so much attention in the news media in recent days has been the coverage of the Supreme Court nomination battle and beginning, of course, before that with the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And there are some questions as to how the media has been handling this and to whether we, broadly speaking, in the media have been handling this with independence. Alan, you want to lead off the conversation on this? Well, it is multifaceted. As we speak today, the president has made further utterances which directly reflect on that. And the question then is what the media does about it and how they cover it. Today, he is suggesting he wants to get his nominee onto the Supreme Court as fast as possible because he may bring a lawsuit or there may be a lawsuit involving voting in the United States. And he wants that new judge to be there to rule in his favor. Basically, that's what he's saying. Now, that's a hell of a news story because, you know, the media has not been kind to this president, but every once in a while he does something that makes everything else look petty compared to the latest malfeasance, and that's what this is. So when you have a lying, lying, lying liar president, how you stop covering him accurately because, after all, what's new under the sun? Judy? Well, you know, we've had this breathless coverage about whether or not the Republicans were going to move forward, when of course the Republicans were going to move forward. It's almost a given. I fault the media, though, for not really nailing down everybody, all Republicans. Don't just focus on Mitch McConnell. Focus on every single Republican. Every other Republican in the Senate gets kind of a pass because, you know, they say, oh, this person's a swing Republican and maybe they'll change their vote. And in the meantime, we're entirely losing the context of essentially this is going to happen. The press really should explain why this is important and what will happen and what the consequences will be. And I'm not seeing that. I'm seeing far too much hyperbole about this and not enough real analysis of what's happening. I mean, for goodness sakes, we've known Ruth Bader Ginsburg has been very ill. She went on palliative care months ago, and everybody's been lining up for this fight for a long time. This isn't a surprise, but everybody's treating it like it's a big surprise. I think your analysis is brilliant, to be honest with you, because you're right. We do hear about Susan Collins and Senator Murkowski and maybe Mitch Romney every once in a while, but we don't hear from the rank-and-file Republicans, many of whom are facing elections. 
And that is something that a good newsroom and a good news editor would say, go out and press him or her until we find out what they're going to do on this. And you're right. Well, I don't know that I we think... know that we're right because it's not clear that we're paying attention to what the Denver Post is saying. Or uh, We heard on Meet the Press Chuck Todd grilling a senator who is up for re-election from Wyoming, John Barrasso. And I think the line of questioning was exactly what you're suggesting, Judy, that we ought to have. Here's a great question. Listen to this. Should viewers just not believe anything you're saying today because whatever you're saying today will change depending on the politics of the moment? Now, that's a heck of a question. Again, yeah. that's Chuck Todd on NBC grilling a Wyoming Republican who's up for re-election. So, you know, maybe they are being held to account in their individual races. Well, let's put it this way, Rex. You may be well, right. And there may be one newspaper, you know, around in a particular senatorial district or state that is covering this correctly. Nevertheless, for the most part, and I take note of what you just said about Chuck Todd, it really hasn't made the top creme de la creme of the news. We have heard about these other actors, but not about the rank and file. Well, and I, I want to go back to what Alan said, too, at, at the beginning and calling this a, a multifaceted issue. And it truly is, because on one hand, you do you, you have this politicized version of the approach that's happening right now, whether or not to nominate something now before or after the election. But you also have just the issue of the Supreme Court at hand. We have to remember that the Supreme Court was not, you know, meant to be Republican or Democratic Party, although it certainly has evolved to becoming one. And I think that has drastically shifted the public perception and public trust in what the Supreme Court is supposed to do. And so I think that's a, a whole other issue. And then there's, you know, just the facts of, of who are these folks looking at their age and looking at the impact of what could happen over the next 30 to 40 years easily. Let's take a look at this issue. What about the conflict of interest that's been discussed involving Nina Totenberg? The story of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death uh, was broken, in fact, by Nina Totenberg. When I got the bulletin on my phone, it was an NPR bulletin, and that's unusual that NPR actually leads the country. But that's because, it turns out, Nina Totenberg had a very close personal relationship with Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She was a good friend, and Nina Totenberg covers the Supreme Court for NPR. Is there an issue there? First of all, this goes back a long time. It came as a surprise to me. I didn't realize they were friends. They were very close. I think they were in the same COVID bubble. They would have dinner every other week. Nina's husband was taking care of Ruth Bader Ginsburg in her final months. This was not just an acquaintance. This is a friendship. And I think it reflects this whole Washington insider press-politician relationships that doesn't speak well of the press and erodes our credibility across the nation. NPR should have disclosed this every time she she covered a Supreme Court story. She's a great Supreme Court reporter, but now I'm looking back and I'm thinking there are a lot of reporters out there that could have covered that. If this relationship was so valuable, walk away from that beat. You'll all remember Ben Bradley, of course, had a very close relationship with the president of the United States, with John F. Kennedy, and he's taken some heat on that. And yet, if you want the stories, and it's, you editors know better than anybody, anybody's got a contact, that's all good. Yeah, it's hard. And the John Kennedy, Ben Bradley thing, of course, was in the late 50s and early 60s. And that's a different era for both journalism and politics. Not to excuse it, but I'm just saying that nowadays we think that wouldn't happen. And yet that's why it's so surprising to see this. And yes, you want to get the story. And sometimes you do get the story because of those relationships. 
But it does seem to me that a reporter's responsibility is to avoid developing that kind of a relationship with someone. I think that I probably, as a journalist, missed out on friendships, quite frankly, because Mm -hmm. I couldn't be close to people. You end up not socializing with people who you might really like to (laughs) because you have to maintain a distance. You just have to. So I think it was a failing on the part of Nina Totenberg, but I wonder about the responsibility on the part of her editors, the people who run NPR. I'm sure that they they had to be aware of this, why they might not have said to her, Nina, you need to step aside on this. Let me just register my disapproval of what you've just said, Rex, for change. (laughs) You know, you and I have known each other for a long time, and I know you're assiduous in your applications of journalistic ethics and morality. I know that it's been relatively difficult for WAMC, which I head, to get into the Times Union because I think you don't want to... I, I, don't want to, I wondered where this I was think, going. I couldn't tell. Yeah, we're off to the races. I, I couldn't help uh-huh. myself, but there you go. Okay. But no, I think when people have contacts, that's what makes journalism real. And I couldn't disagree with you more. I think. So you think it's just fine that Nina Totenberg had this friendship? I, I, I thought you were on the Absolute, other side of it. Absolutely. It's, it's, no, different, no. it's different than protecting your sources, though. You know, protecting your sources is, is one thing, keeping them confidential within yourself. But it, it's a, it's another thing when, if you look at the details of how close this relationship was, I mean, the fact that Justice Ginsburg presided over her wedding, you know, that just doesn't happen in the third dinners and, and nights out on the town. That's a lot different than just, you know, having a solid source that you've known for years who, you know, feeds you information. That's, I think they're completely different relationships. And I think as a journalist, you always have to be aware of, you know, even if you decide to do what Nina Totenberg has done and and build this really long-term relationship that you have to expect to be called out on it. You have to be accountable to that and be able to explain yourself. And I think she did, but I question sort of her response to that. Well, you know, if if you have the opportunity to be friends with someone of the likes of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, you know, and both of you can respect each other's job, you know, that's fine in some regards. But I think you do have to be transparent about it. And you do have to just say, I am aware of this. But, you know, and I think as a local journalist, I confront that all the time, just working in my my hometown. And I have conversations with my editors and we talk about how to disclose relationships towards things. You know, I cover a principal who I had as a teacher <laughs> at one point, and, and, you know, we have to be clear about that. It is harder, well, I think you're right, Jen, in small communities, particularly because you're right there next to people. You're covering folks that you run into in the grocery store. The people who you cover become folks that you see every day. When I was at a large newsroom at a downstate newspaper, I covered the courts. So I was part of the criminal justice team. So whenever there was a story that had to be done that seemed to suggest that there was a corrupt cop, I would have to write that because the cops reporters were too close to the cops. The sense was they couldn't write about Mm -hmm. the people that they were buying coffee and donuts and drinks for. And, you know, you, you do find yourself often compromised just because you see these people all the time. You get to know them. That's hard. Mm -hmm. I don't know. You know, Rex, I have from time to time thought I had a story that's really worthy of your great talents. And I've tried to pass those on, despite the fact that, you know, you won't put much about WAMC in your newspaper. And we're friends. We know we're friends. So, you know, I I think you guys are all wrong. And I think that there may just be some incipient jealousy here about 
<laughs> how dare she have these? How dare she have this great, con- great contact? I guess I have to say that. Nope. <laughs> no, no, no. Nope, this is basic you... journalism ethics, no. Alan. This is your key. No, it isn't. You can't, I can't tell you the number of stories yeah. I didn't write because I was friends with someone. I said, I can't write this story because it's friends. It's something as an editor I would say to reporters all the time, your sources are not your friends. These are not your friends. Mm-hmm. You can have relationships with them. Don't go to their birthday parties. Don't bake them cakes. Go to their Christmas parties. Mm-hmm. They're sources. They're not friends. Okay, so it's three to one. I want to be on the record as saying I don't agree with any of you. Alan, let the record reflect. Alan, in favor of conflicts of interest. All right. I think, you take, I think you take it where you can get it, and you announce it as much as possible. Okay, well, that's good. If you're just joining us wondering what in the world am I listening to, this is the Media Project from Northeast Public Radio. I'm Rex Smith of the Times Union, here with Jen Smith, no relation, by the way, from the Berkshire Eagle, Judy oh, Patrick, sure. formerly of the Daily Gazette, and the New York Press Association, and Alan Shartok. I don't even need to tell people who Alan is. They're listening to us here. We don't need to identify who the man is. But All right. Apparently, he's uh, friends with everybody. Apparently so. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, Judy, that's why I don't have to worry, because I am not friends with everybody. <laughs> <laughs> or anybody. So <laughs> yes, that's exactly that's exactly the point. It's a very difficult situation for all reporters, I think, to confront how you deal with the need to establish relationships with sources, but avoid making those relationships so tight that you run into a conflict of interest. Here's the issue that we really need to be confronting, how to show the real effects of the pandemic. I think that notwithstanding the Supreme Court fight, mm. notwithstanding the, the wildfires of the West, the hurricanes in the, the American Southeast, the story of 200,000 people dead, a pandemic gripping the globe, America's response being perhaps fairly judged to be the worst in the world. How do we really show this without the story seeming to repeat itself over and over? And how do we assess how the media has been doing so far as we pass this 200,000 deaths milestone? What's going on? What kind of stories should we be doing? What have we been doing? Jen, can I start with you on this? Can you tell me how the Eagle has been covering the pandemic? And if you had more time in your life, what do you think you would be doing more of? What kind of coverage would you be getting to as a reporter on this particular story? Again, I'm going to use that word multifaceted because there isn't a sector of life that is not affected. So, you know, we, we have our daily totals column written by a couple of our staff members that just give the updates, the facts of the number of cases, the number of deaths, changes in policy, changes in in guidance, you know, whether it's the CDC flip-flopping or any other updates, schools obviously is a huge thing. It affects businesses. You know, if you ask if I have more time, I mean, there's just not enough time. And the time, it's a long game. Any journalist covering the pandemic is in it for the long haul because the effects are, are just going to reverberate and they're so uncertain for years to come. And I think that's everything from jobs to health and health insurance. You know, I think that ties right back into the Supreme Court when it comes to, you know, that aspect of health. It's housing. You know, again, as so many of these federal funds and and grants and supports are set to run out by the end of the year, what kind of lurch does that leave the states in? You know, you need folks to be analysts on this. You need folks to be practical and just hearing from everyday people 
it's heartbreaking. It's absolutely heartbreaking. And, and the stake of inequity that's being driven into the ground in this is just, it is a deep, deep trench. You know, for the massive size of this pandemic, I find it's kind of hidden. People are kind of just accepting it, and you're not seeing the stories that we need to see about the impact on people who've had the virus and are still suffering you know, symptoms. We're not seeing the amount of real hard-hitting local journalism about who got grants, you know, what they were spent on, and how those businesses are doing now. We're not seeing enough of real hard-hitting information about how each individual school schools are handling the kids' return to school. I mean, it's a big, big story, but for the size of it, for the sheer magnitude, I am not seeing the amount of attention to stories that, that, that this really deserves. You know, I wanted to follow up. Do you think it's a direct effect of just, you know, newsrooms being spread so thin? I think of this being a public health issue at the heart of it, but how many newsrooms still have public health dedicated and, you know, well-sourced public health reporters? It's partly that, but I also think people, uh, I think there's a reluctance of people who have suffered from this disease to talk about it. There's a shame that kind of, there's a stigma that goes to it. There, There shouldn't be, but these stories are all underground, and I think that's horrible. Now, I think there's something that's being overlooked here, and I talked about it early on. When we say 200,000 deaths, that's a statistic. But I think what's beginning to happen, and I mean, I've been on this particular bent for quite a while now. CNN, for example, is starting to take out individual stories of people who got the disease and died. There's a big difference between that person and the stark statistic of 200,000, which tends not to be as meaningful because every one of those 200,000 people have a story. Every one of them has some way in which a family has been affected or loved ones. So I think that's the big failure of American press, which is we haven't done enough to really talk about the people who have died as individuals as opposed to part of a statistic. Yeah, that's a really great point. Let the record reflect that I said that about something Alan said. Um, It is a really good point that the reality of the suffering is something that people can only understand when you bring it down to that micro level. And so in individual stories, you know, maybe we need to be running a story every day on this victim or that, and not just uh, the people who have died, but the businesses that have suffered and gone under and the families that are scraping by and the families who are in food lines who never thought that would happen to them and the people locked in their homes in isolation. These individual stories, I think you're right, Alan, are those that really give resonance to those numbers. And perhaps we, uh, because we're so far into this now, so many months into it, maybe we have a certain fatigue on the part of journalists to be telling those stories, but that kind of trauma is what needs to come through so that we're not just seeing this as, in the words of the president, it is what it is, the number of deaths. It is what it is. He says, well, no, that's that's not really what it is for the lives of the individuals involved. And I think you have a point that we need to be really paying attention to that suffering, to what is actually going on. Maybe it has to do with the fact that the pandemic more greatly affects people who are poor and black, and in some cases rural as well. It's now affecting folks out in the rural Midwest. Maybe it is that the people who are in greatest need are those who are overlooked generally anyway. 
Is that part of the problem? I think, I mean, I, I will say from my perspective, this is reporting what you're talking about is something that the media is not always good at. We're not good at talking about ableism. We're not good at talking about even ageism. In the Berkshires, for example, and same in New York State, a lot of the first hard hit were folks in nursing homes. Um, and, you know, we covered a bit of that on the onset in a very dense way, but, you know, there's still a lot to be covered there. And what's the aftermath? What's the fallout of that? Do we have the infrastructure still? And, and how are these families affected for the, the long term? And I think you're going to see more families become activists on that matter to find out if they feel wronged. I think there's a lot of people who feel wronged about this and, and belittled when people say some people in the political arena are saying, well, it's only 200,000 and that's not acceptable. And and that's been a matter across many other public health issues too. It's it, that don't get the, the coverage that they deserve. I mean, while the pandemic is still happening, there's still cancer, there's still HIV AIDS, there are still so many other things that affect our, our health and well-being, like alcoholism and, and obesity. Those are all still real public health threats that are actually compounded by COVID-19 and whatever happens next with the virus. All right. Well, we're going to have to wrap it up there with a call for no. more heartfelt reporting. Yes, I'm sorry <laughs> on the individual wow, stories and how this This, sh- this show ought to be an hour. This show ought to be an hour. <laughs> <laughs> you can write to share your Rick views Smith. on that, folks, and others. Media at wamc.org. We'd appreciate it. Alan Shartok, Judy Patrick, Jen Smith. We're going to miss you. Good luck out in Seattle. Thank you. And I'm Rex Smith from the Times Union. Thanks to our producer David Gasina, and thanks to you for joining us this week on the Media Project. Hold the press, hold the press, extra, extra, read all about it. It's a mess meets the test. All newspapermen meet such interesting people. Like the richest girl who could not bake a cake. Ding, 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 ding. The Media Project is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. Alan Shartok is CEO of WAMC, Professor Emeritus at the State University of New York, commentator, columnist, and author. Rex Smith is editor of the Times Union. Judy Patrick is the Vice President for Editorial Development for the New York Press Association. And Jen Smith is the Community Engagement Editor and an Education Reporter at the Berkshire Eagle. You can listen to or podcast The Media Project anytime at WAMC.org or just download the WAMC app for your iPhone or Android at the Play Store today. Thanks for listening. That's a thrill all together fits the bill. All newspaper men are such interesting people. It's wonderful to represent the show. Now publishers are such interesting people. Their policy is an acrobatic thing. They claim to represent the common people. Funny Wall Street never has complained. Ah, but publishers have worries, for publishers must go to working folks for readers and to big shots for their dough. Now publishers are such interesting people. It could be prostitution, I don't know. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, circulation, ting-a-ling-a-ling, advertising, get those readers, get that payoff. What a headache, what a mess. Oh, publishers are such interesting people. Let's give free cheers for freedom of the press.